Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Joshua 2, verses 1 to 19, and Matthew 1, verses 3 to 5. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So he went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message, sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalk of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and when you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord of your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. But if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by the rope through, through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hill so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord on the win- in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done. Not only was that long, but names, Bible names. Uh, So, 
When the Bible says something, uh, it has a meaning and it has a purpose. There's a reason why things are said in the Bible. Uh, First, one of the reasons why we trust that we can uh, see meaning and purpose in everything the Bible says is because we first believe it's the Word of God. And so when God says something, when God speaks, uh, we listen. But in addition to that, uh, as a matter of style and purpose, biblical authors tended to not waste time on unnecessary or meaningless details. So when a detail is provided, there's a reason. Those details teach us something. They are there for us to see for a reason. And the people that we have been looking at over the course of our series uh, over the past several weeks prove that point. Because by all accounts, the people in our series would likely have never been seen as consequential people. But in the kingdom of God, each one of them, as we've seen, have been exalted throughout the scripture. Now, today begins the Advent series, uh, weeks leading up to Christmas. And this Advent series, we've been uh, taking a look at the matriarchs, those in the line of Jesus. And in particular, we're now honing in on the genealogy found in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, It's a genealogy that is full of important, very important details. And as we slowly make our way through the genealogy, paying attention to the people that Matthew Matthew begins to highlight, we see that the scripture, Matthew here, is teaching us something with these details. And today we come to the next woman in the line of Jesus, uh, the woman named Rahab, a Canaanite woman from Jericho. Now, uh, Rahab is an especially uh, fascinating woman in the context of scripture. Uh, As we're going to see, the Bible takes Rahab and her story and her example very seriously. Uh, We're going to see as well, though, that there's this counterintuitiveness to the exaltation that Rahab has within the Bible because she is very much an unlikely person to be known or to be thought much of. Um, Not only by the standards of biblical times, but also by our standards today. So with that in mind, let's consider why she is so unlikely to be this uh, hero of the faith. Again, by uh, most standards, including our own today, let's consider why. Number one, she's an unlikely hero. Number two, let's take a look at her unlikely faith. And then finally, we'll take a look at her unlikely legacy. Okay, so first, why is she an unlikely hero? All right, so who is Rahab? Well, for context, for what we just heard read, so decades before what you just heard, uh, Israel was liberated from the oppression of the Egyptians, uh, and they were sent on a journey toward a new promised land that God uh, was going to give them. However, due to their lack of faith and their trust in the goodness of their liberating God, they ended up wandering the wilderness for many years. But in the book of Joshua, we see the Israelites now beginning to enter the promised land, uh, which was a land that they were now going to need to conquer. The land of Canaan uh, was a land of great pagan wickedness, it's important to note. Uh, Yet even despite their wickedness, the Canaanites' wickedness, God had been incredibly patient with the Canaanites and with the judgment that was about to come against them. In fact, we see back in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, who lived in Canaan at the time, that one day his offspring would return to the land, and when they did, judgment would come against the wickedness of the Canaanites. The reason why this is important, because God had been patient 
with the Canaanites for over 400 years before this judgment was about to come. But now, by the time this judgment is about to come, they had become so wicked, and in particular, they'd become known for cult prostitution and child sacrifice. Judgment was now coming. And the Israelites conquering the land was part of that judgment against this wicked people. But in our passage, we see that the Israelites that are now coming into Jericho, which was this fortified city, and before attacking the city, Joshua, their leader, sent two spies in to check out the city. Uh, now those two spies, they enter the city and they end up in the home of Rahab, who we are told is a prostitute, whose home was on the outermost parts of the city wall. Her home was probably much less of a, of a private home and maybe more like an inn. Given her profession, she likely had a lot of visitors coming in and out to stay. And this was consequential because the spies uh, were pretty quickly found out. Right? The, the, the authorities within Jericho knew that their sp the spies were there. And so they come to Rahab's home. Uh, they come demanding that she bring the spies out. But as we just heard, she uh, lies to the soldiers, basically telling them, hey, listen, you just missed these guys. Uh, they were headed for the gate. If you hurry, you might be able to catch them. Uh, they believe her and the authorities, they run off trying to uh, find those spies. But of course, we know that the spies had not run off. Rahab had hid them. And when the coast was clear, she helped these spies escape. Now, I said that Rahab was an unlikely hero, and I just want to be clear about why that's the case. Let me just recap why she's so unlikely of a hero in the Bible. First of all, Rahab is a woman, and women at this time had nearly no rights and no status um, in this time and place, particularly amongst the Canaanites. Right? That would have been the case for any woman. But not only was she a woman, we're also told that she was a prostitute. And not only was she a prostitute, but she was also a pagan Canaanite, right? The people whom God was preparing to judge with the, by the Israelites in their hand. So not only was she Canaanite, she was also, as we're seeing here, she was a liar who just committed treason against her own people, right? By every typical measure, she would be a very unlikely hero. Yet I started today by saying that the Bible actually thinks very highly of Rahab. In fact, she is not only listed in the genealogy of Jesus, which we'll take a look at more fully in a moment, but she is also one of two women listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. She is listed amongst Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. She is listed as one of the great exemplars of the faith. And even more in the book of James, James gives two examples of true faith in action. He names Abraham as one, and the other person that he names, of all the people that he could name, the other person that he names is Rahab. Why? I mean, given all that we know about her, all the assumptions that those in biblical times would have had about her, and frankly, even the assumptions that we would have about her today, why is she so exalted in the Bible? Well, that leads to the second point, which is her unlikely faith. Believe it or not, Rahab actually exemplifies what Christians believe about salvation. Specifically, the Christian faith is not based on works, but it's based on God's sovereign grace, 
a grace that comes by faith and that it's a gift that God gives to us, as Ephesians 2 puts it. And that flowing out of that grace comes works or a life that aligns with the kingdom of God. That is James, in the book of James, that's his main point when he says that, there, um, that a faith without works is dead. To be a Christian is to be given a gift of faith that justifies us before God, making us righteous, which then leads us to living a life of righteousness. Now, when we, when we think about this whole idea of um, being justified by faith, some, semi-jokingly, they look at uh, Abraham, actually, and they often describe Abraham as being the first Christian. Because in many ways, even though Abraham came many, many years before Jesus would come, the nature of salvation is seen in how God justifies Abraham. You see this in Genesis 15. It says that Abraham believed the Lord, he had faith in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified before God because of his faith in God. But then... In James 2, I said, uh, James uh, makes mention of Abraham. In James 2, James then argues that as a result of that justification that uh, Abraham had before God as a result of faith, Abraham proved that he was righteous by his willingness to offer up the most important thing in his life, which was his son Isaac. And in James 2, if you guys want to throw this up, James concludes with this. He says that, and the scripture was fulfilled that says that Abraham believed, oh, scoot back, can you guys go back? Well, there it is, okay. And the, um, I don't have this in my notes. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You will see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. All right, let me just pause there for a minute. So what we're seeing here is that by faith, Abraham is made righteous, and that as a result of him being made righteous, now his life reflects that righteousness in the way that he is about to live. This is an example of Christian salvation and the life that comes as a result. Faith that leads to righteous standing, which is proved through righteous action. Okay, so that's Jacob. Or, I'm sorry, Jacob. That's Abraham. But then James gives another example for us to consider. Not only does he describe the faith and the works of Abraham, he then, in verse 25, turns and begins to describe Rahab and says this, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So if Abraham was the first Christian in the way that we uh, describe it, Rahab, I think, could very well be called the second one. And where exactly do we see the faith that translates into works in the same way that they did with Abraham? Where do we see that in our passage with Rahab? Well, look again at verses 8 through 11. Okay, here's Rahab's faith in the works that come as a result. It says this, that before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out to, uh, of Egypt 
And what you did in Sihon and in Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, for everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven alone and on the earth below. So, in case we miss it, what we're seeing here is that word has traveled concerning God's liberation of Israel and Egypt. And as a result, some begin to recognize the mighty God of Israel. And some, when hearing that greatness, come to believe in that God, a God whose name that at this point they do not yet know. But when they heard of this God, they said that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And as a result of that declaration, that declaration of faith, Rahab, the prostitute, and her family were saved from the coming destruction of Jericho. And she would become one of the most exalted women in all of human history with her place in in the Bible. And here's what I find fascinating. That faith is such a simple yet meaningful faith. I mean, all she knew was of the mighty acts of God and then believed that that God was the God heaven above and the earth below. That's such a simple thing, and yet so profound. And the reason why that fascinates me is because we, as Christians, believe a lot of different things. There are many different things that Christians believe. And on top of that, there are many different types of Christians that believe many different types of things. So our church, we're a Presbyterian church, and we have particular beliefs that are different than our Baptist or Lutheran or uh, Pentecostal or Catholic brothers and sisters. There is an impossible number of books that have been written, sermons that have been preached about what Christians believe. I mean, it would take lifetimes upon lifetimes to plumb the endless depths of Scripture and all the things that God reveals uh, to us about himself, much of which we could never fully understand, for they are really ultimately only known to the eternal mind of God. Profound, profound things to know about God and how he works. And yet, despite all those depths, saving faith is hearing about a mighty God and trusting that that God is God in heaven above and earth below. And for some of us, we need to be reminded of how important it is to have that simple yet profound faith. For some, we forget that, yes, there is much to know about God and the mighty works of God, but in the end, it's There's a simple trust that we need to have. And then on top of that, to also be reminded of how far God's grace extends to us. You know, when I look out into the the zeitgeist of Christian Twitter and blogs and books that exist out there, it's so easy to find Christians so quick to throw stones at other Christians. It's so easy to find uh, infighting that leads many to hurl accusations of heresy or condemnation. It's so easy to find people who are quick with harsh words for those whose lives do not yet fully align with what we would believe to be the Bible's teaching about how we ought to live. It's so easy to find all of that out there. But then we come to a story like the story of Rahab. And the faith of Rahab is so instructive for us. And the reason we being is that 
you know, don't get me wrong. The Bible has a lot to say about right doctrine and believing the right things and what it means to be unfaithful. The Bible has a lot to say about living a life that's in alignment with God's commands and that disobedience and rebellion to God's uh, commands, it comes with consequences. All of that is true. But a right standing before God is something that doesn't require full knowledge of all the great mysteries of God. It doesn't even require full alignments of our lives to God's commands. What we're seeing here is Rahab with a simple faith, Rahab the prostitute, who likely at this point had not yet escaped that lifestyle of prostitution. What we see here is her proclaim a simple faith and trust in God. And with that simple faith comes an experience of God's mercy and grace, a grace that extends far further than most of us are willing to assume it will. Plus, here's what I find most captivating about Rahab's faith, is actually the way that James, in the book of James, describes it. Because he argues that her faith, like Abraham, is proved by her works. But at this point in the story, let's just be clear, Rahab does not know the Ten Commandments. She does not know the laws of God. So how is her life in any way proved by works? What has she done that's proved the faith that she has? Her life is far from being reflective of God's holiness and his righteousness. So what then are the works that James is referring to? Well, look again at James 2, uh, verse 25. James said this about Rahab. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Interesting that that's what he draws on. I don't have this uh, up for you to see, but then in Hebrews 11, which is the other passage where she's treated as an exemplar, uh, an example of faith, says this about her, that by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Again, it's focusing the attention on her caring for and protecting the spies. Why? Let me say a couple of things about that. The first thing I want to just quickly address uh, regarding Rahab's lie when she's protecting the spies uh, is there's actually a lot of debates about that lie. This is so not the point of anything I'm trying to get to, but I do feel like I should at least address it. There's a lot of debate about whether or not Rahab should have lied. Uh, And I'm actually not going to come down on any particular side of this debate. Uh, I really don't want to spend a whole lot of time because there are highly respected theologians that are uh, way, way smarter than me uh, who very much disagree about this, take very different perspectives. John Calvin, uh, he condemned the lie, uh, arguing that uh, she should not have lied. God worked through the lie nonetheless because he was faithful. Uh, Martin Luther, though, took a very different approach, arguing that the lie was actually uh, good because it was for good and that it was ultimately not a lie against God. R.C. Sproul, another very respected uh, theologian, argued that Rahab's lie was actually an act of heroism in a time of war. Uh, and though we, um, we always are required to tell the truth when righteousness requires it, there's also times uh, when we <laughs> are allowed to kind of pursue this diversion, and he gives examples of, uh, like, the Jewish people in Nazi Germany. Would it be right to tell Nazis where Jewish people might be hiding? All those, it's debated. That's all I'm trying to say. But the point of that is she obviously lies. 
That lie then ends up protecting the spies. And I should also just say that the Bible, no, Bible nowhere commends this lie and says that this lie was a good thing. Instead, the Bible focuses its, uh, her commitment to care for the spies. That's where the Bible decides what the Bible decides to emphasize. And so I'm going to also emphasize that as well. So we're going to move away from the lie and hone in on the fact that it really does matter that she cared for these spies. Why does that matter? Well, because on top of telling the lie, it's also important that the, to, know, to remember that the lie itself was treasonous. She betrayed her entire nation and all of their, all the governing authorities by protecting the spies. But in doing so, she also proves her loyalty to something far more important than her nation or her people. Her action shows her commitment to the God who is the God in heaven above and the earth below. She is quite literally willing to risk her life, give up her life on nothing but the hope of the salvation that comes through this mighty God. And in that hope and faith, God says, your faith makes you righteous for your actions prove you trust me. My friends, here is why, uh, what I want us to hear, to be abundantly clear, is that a simple faith in the one true God, a faith reflected in our willingness to offer our lives up to him is what takes Rahab from a prostitute in a pagan land about to be judged by God to being one of the most celebrated women in all of human history. She is saved from the city's destruction. She is exalted in the ways that she is because of her simple faith and her willingness to give her whole life to the God who saves. But not only is she saved from this coming judgment, but again, we also see that she's in the line of Jesus. I mean, don't miss the fact that God's people were Israel throughout the narrative, but that God over and over again throughout um, the Old Testament shows that he's not just committed to the people of Israel. He's also committed to Gentiles as well, non-Jewish people as well. And this has massive implications for our understanding of how God is working amongst every tribe and nation and tongue. It's important just to note, again, a side note, but an important one, homogeneity is not God's desire or purpose. God desires to see a vast number of people all singing his praises. That is his desire. That is his purpose. But also, as we've seen time and time and time again in the series, God also has a particular desire to lift the heads of those who are downtrodden. He desires to see the unseen, to love the unloved, to bring wholeness to those who are broken. And so I said in the very beginning that details matter in the Bible. So why does Matthew highlight Rahab? Why is that detail so important in the genealogy? What was his point in doing so? Well, first, there's a couple of reasons why I think it's so important that Matthew hones in on this woman. It's important to note that Matthew, he wrote uh, his gospel primarily to the Jewish people. Of course, it was for all people, but as you'll see throughout his, uh, throughout his narrative, he's always emphasizing Old Testament history. And the reason why it's so important that he hones in on Rahab is that first, there were nationalists who had no vision for God's diversity. They, at the time, they very much saw 
the Jewish people as the only people to receive the blessing of God. And so as a result of that, what you're seeing Matthew do is emphasize a Canaanite woman, a woman who absolutely was not Jewish in any way. There was no pure blood or singular culture or citizenship in the kingdom of God, and Matthew is making that abundantly clear. And I think that's also important for us to be reminded of today as well, because there's actually a really disturbing trend growing right now in certain pockets of Christianity, emphasizing the notions of uh, kinsism, maybe you've heard this before, or forms of nationalism that believe that God ordains and desires uh, particular tribes or nations or tongues to remain separated, and that there are even some who believe it still to be sinful to begin mixing races or ethnicities, and that there's really no value in that kind of mixture, but that we ought to keep a kind of pure blood, and that again, it's even sinful to begin mixing. And just to be clear, for Christians, such beliefs are completely antithetical to New Testament theology. Um, and it's also important for us to just say that most of the time that is just an attempt to use faith as a way of justifying bigotry. That's a separate thing. But it's also just important to, uh, to note that it's a perennial issue that comes up over and over and over again throughout history. And the people of Matthew's time would have had a very similar posture toward the Gentiles. They were unclean. And yet here what we have is we have Rahab, the Canaanite woman, and her inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus, which completely upends any notion of quote-unquote pure blood. But the second thing, the second reason why Matthew would point her out is that Matthew would have also wanted to remind the self-righteous, the pious, the arrogant, the proud, remind them of how great grace works and the ways that God works and how beautiful and big his grace really is and his particular care and his particular heart for the downtrodden. Rahab represents God's purpose in salvation, which is to focus his attention on those who come with that simple faith, allowing their lives to be transformed by that simple faith. And that's the reason why he draws her out. It's such an important detail. And if we just rush past her in our genealogy, we miss all that God is communicating in that genealogy. But that then leads us to the last thing, the final point, was that as a result of Rahab, we all, in her story, we also see a very unlikely legacy that comes as a result. Uh, so Rahab, she helped the spies flee, and in doing so, she wants to ensure the safety of her family. And look again at verse 17. It says, Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house, into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. But, will not be, but we, we will not be responsible. And for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. Let me pause there. What if any significance is there to th this entire scene? There's actually a lot to draw out that I can't possibly spend all of our time on, but let me focus in on one, again, really important detail. Again, the Bible doesn't give details unless they are significant. 
what is the detail of her hanging this scarlet cord from the window? Well, the scarlet cord actually pops up several times throughout the Bible. One time it pops up uh, is actually from our passage last week, if you were with us. If you recall, Tamar, she gives birth uh, to sons, and a scarlet cord is used to identify the older son, the one uh, through whom the family blessing would, would carry on, the family line would carry on, and that son would be Perez, from whom the line, from his, whom, from his line would come the Redeemer, the long-awaited Redeemer. In fact, if you look at the genealogy of, uh, that we just heard read, Rahab would eventually marry the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Perez. But then we also see the scarlet cord on the garments of the priests in the temple. And the red, that red cord, represents bloodshed in the sacrifices for sin. So when we think of what she is doing here in this passage. What we're supposed to see here is we're uh, calling to mind a scene that came the night of the Passover. Do you remember that story? If you remember in Egypt, when judgment was coming on Egypt, the Lord commanded his people to put blood on their doorways as a sign. And when the spirit of death came, death and judgment would pass by them and keep them safe. There was safety to to be found behind that blood. So this red cord... Right? This scarlet cord reminds us of a firstborn redeemer and also reminds us of the blood and sacrifice needed for salvation from the coming judgment. All of which, my friends, is foreshadowing something. It's a temporal glimpse into another firstborn who would come. The firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1 calls him. It's calling to mind one who comes and is the the Lamb of God, the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world by the shedding of his blood. It's calling to mind the one who becomes sin, thus satisfying the justice of God on the cross. The one who becomes our righteousness so that faith alone might justify us before God. The one who will be our protection from judgment and death. It's the one in whom Rahab and Abraham and many others found their true righteousness, their justification, their safety. It's that firstborn, that sacrifice, that heir, that safety being, of course, Jesus Christ himself. This entire scene is reminding us of the salvation that will come through the Redeemer. And the legacy of Rahab is, on the one hand, a legacy that she inherited— It's a legacy that spans back to God's promises with Abraham. It's a legacy that God uh, maintains through the generations until Rahab, and then she becomes part of it. But then on the other hand, it's also a legacy that extends out past her through to Jesus, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, and now is a legacy that we now become part of as well. Those who, like Rahab, find salvation from coming judgment by resting in and trusting in that scarlet cord, that blood of Christ shed on the cross. Those who come with that simple faith, trusting in the God who saves. And as a result of that simple faith, allowing their lives to be transformed in such a way that they're willing to give their lives completely and fully to him. This is the story of Rahab, but this is also very much our story as well. And so my encouragement would be for all of us, that in this Advent season, as we think about and uh, long for the coming of Jesus, 
through this season, that we'd also be reminded that he has given us reminders of his great grace, Rahab being one of them. And I pray that her story we'd recognize as our own story and in this Advent season find all the more reason to celebrate in what Jesus has accomplished for us. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, thank you for the reminders that you give us. That sometimes if we're too quick uh, to just kind of quickly move through your word, we might miss. But I thank you for this reminder in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus. I thank you for the reminder of Rahab, the one who the world might not thought much of, but that you saw. The one who did not have all the great theological knowledge of you, but had a simple faith. The one whose life certainly had not fully aligned to your commands, but who was willing to give her life fully to you. God, I thank you for her story and for what it reminds us of, namely your great grace and mercy. And we thank you for the full embodiment of that great mercy in the work of Jesus. And we thank you that as we trust in him, your spirit transforms our lives, making us a people who also lay down our lives. So would you give us, Lord, that simple faith? For those of us here that have not trusted yet in Jesus, would you give us that simple faith? For those of us that have maybe walked with Jesus for many years, would you remind us of that simple faith that trusts you? And that as a result is reflected in the way that we live, a life honoring to you. We ask that your spirit would do this in us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.org.